does take that courage to say what you know to be true when to say the truth comes with a societal cost. I've been waiting for something like this to come up for a while now. In this podcast, I try to throw up all kinds of surprising guests from the coffin confessor to a doctor who realised he was a psychopath. But mostly, I look at extreme ideologies and what happens when we fall for magical thinking, as we all do from time to time. That means my guests often warn of the perils of cults, such as Scientology, the Jehovah's Witnesses, Hasidic Jews and Islam. It's not all about God either, uh, as we see in the episode on the Nixium multi-level marketing cult, or the woman who became a right-wing extremist. I'd wager that these cults and extreme movements may lack a God, but they're still religious. And that leads me on to today's episode. Perhaps the most contentious part of On the Edge with Andrew Gold is the fact that I consider woke culture and the social justice movement among those godless religions. I rarely get complaints when we tackle Mormons or the Children of God cults, but the one-star reviews are out in droves when I talk about woke culture. People start suggesting it's become right-wing, this podcast, even though I'm left of centre on pretty much every issue from gun control and abortion rights to prison reform and drugs. A quick aside for those not familiar with woke culture and social justice, it is the ideology that embraces equity of results rather than equality of opportunity. It vehemently splits society into different genders and races and assumes that any disparity in results or income between those different subsections, or the intersectionality as it's called, is down to invisible powers. Like most religions and cults, it sucks you in because it operates under a guise of righteousness and makes you feel good for supporting it, and also because there are grains of truth in its core tenet. The problem is that they address these societal imbalances, which do exist through authoritarian measures, while ignoring old leftist ideals like money and class, which have a far greater impact than anything else. It is why companies like PayPal ban users who criticize Islam and gender ideology. It is why cities with bridges are labeled sexist by The Guardian, why Instagram featured a mute white people button, and why blind, deaf, and dumb historic figure Helen Keller has been accused of having white privilege. These are just three or four among the thousands of examples listed on the Titania McGrath alter ego Twitter account of today's guest. And that guest, Andrew Doyle, has just devoted a beautifully written and well-researched book on why woke culture and social justice are religious. It's called The New Puritans, How the Religion of Social Justice Captured the Western World. In the book, he compares and contrasts woke ideology with that of the Puritans and witch hunters of old. He traces the origin of woke back to German and French philosophers and sees it as a very different and scarier iteration of the political correctness that preceded it. For those who still believe it is somehow right-wing to criticise this ideology, consider his point that this, and I quote from Andrew's book, New Puritanism has meant that it is not uncommon to see self-proclaimed leftists cheering on multi-billion dollar corporations as they ratchet up their policies on censorship and their determination to control the parameters of acceptable thought and speech. 
the greatest trick of authoritarians is to convince their subjects to rejoice in their own subjugation. Now I'm just, that was quoting from his book, but now I'm talking. When you've got McDonald's and Disney on your side, it might be time to reassess quite how rebellious and leftist you really are. Most importantly, Andrew talks today about what we can do to fight back and how to deal with a bully who bullies you out of love. I think it's time to start calling woke culture out for what it is, illiberal authoritarianism, no different to the cults I typically look into on this show. Coming up are episodes about a fake psychic mafia that colluded to share information about clients with one another, an episode with psychologist Katie Morton about eating disorders and new findings about depression, and a look at the cult of reality TV. But now, you're on the edge of woke culture and the new Puritans with Andrew Doyle. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm okay. I, I suppose I should say something a bit more enthusiastic. I'm full of <laughs> I'm full of joy. Yeah, yeah, as as ever. Yeah, of course. What's it like when you know the book's just is coming out? Is it is it out right now? Or is it coming out in the next few days? The New Puritans? No, it's out in it's out very soon. So it's out uh, on September the eighth. So obviously now is the period when I'm getting stuff sorted for it and doing all the preparation and all the rest of it and publicity and things like that. Although I am going away just for the week before the book. So I'll, I'll get I'll be out of here uh, for a while. So that'll be nice. Headspace and everything. I'm really enjoying the new Puritans. Fantastic book. How is it? It's very different to the free speech, which I loved as well. I finished that like so quickly, free speech and new Puritans much deeper. What, what sort of got you going so much deeper? Well, I mean, yeah, it's it's mostly just a much longer book um, because there was a lot more to say about it. And I think um, th- the point of the free speech book is that I wanted it to be concise. I wanted it to be the sort of thing you could read in an afternoon, uh, sort of marshalling all of the, the, the main arguments in favour of free speech, which we seem to have forgotten. And, you know, on the premise that we need to refresh our minds about these fundamental principles every now and then because uh, they, they slip away if we don't guard against that. Uh, as for the New Puritans, well, I wanted to provide a, a, a kind of in-depth uh, explanation because a lot of people are really confused. You know, they look around and they could see all this very regressive stuff going on, all of these very illiberal movements that are sort of dominating our major institutions. They know it's wrong and they can sense it's wrong and they can sense the tremors beneath their feet and nothing feels quite right but this movement describes itself in such progressive terms like social justice anti-racism equity and people think oh well then it must be good it must be good but it feels wrong it's it feels like it's doing the opposite of what it says and so it's confusing so it needed it required a bit more depth to explain where it's come from what 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 the values of this movement are and uh, and also how this is really a battle of language and who gets to control the definitions of words. So uh, the, 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 the high priests of this new religion are very adept at uh, redefining language uh, to make you doubt your own senses, doubt your understanding of the world, so that you sort of outsource your, your, um, uh, your understanding to them. And they sort of come along and say, well, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll tell you what to think and we'll tell you what to say and, and everything will be all right. And uh, so it required a lot more because it's complicated you know every time you 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 talk about an issue if you like take the take the phrase anti-racism on the face of it everyone thinks that's a great thing because who wouldn't be anti-racist we're all against racism so but the phrase itself uh, doesn't mean against racism it's a very specific ideological approach to racism that suggests that if you are not racist that is another form of racism 
And what they believe is that you have to be proactively anti-racist, which means that you have to subscribe to the belief that there are uh, hidden power structures in society that perpetuate white supremacy and that all white people are complicit in. And, uh, you know, it takes some time to sort of unpack what the phrase actually means, why it in fact has quite a uh, damaging outcome and the end point of what they call anti-racism is in fact racial segregation. Um, and that's a, that takes a while to explain. And then you have to talk about what, what language we could use instead. Um, you know, and I, if you take the word woke, I mean, the, the closest synonym I can think of for woke is anti-liberal. But when people use the word woke, they think they're, they think they're saying that they're really liberal. Uh, and it's the precise opposite. So it takes a long time to ex explain and discuss the evolution of words. So yeah, needed a longer book, basically. You know, um, it's interesting what you're saying with the, you know, the way that they call themselves these people, and it's actually illiberal. I've been saying on this show whenever I've interviewed people, and people just, I don't know, they've just sort of nodded. And I thought this was a great point, and everyone just sort of nods along. But um, we've got a bit of a PR problem on on, on sort of the non woke side because by calling, you know, letting them call themselves liberal, progressive, uh, woke, even woke means you're woke, you've woken up to the ideas of these kind, you know, you're ahead of the game. Uh, shouldn't we be calling them bigoted? Aren't they? Are these people not bigots in a sense? They are bigots in the sense of the dictionary definition. Uh, the dictionary definition of bigotry is the, an incapability of, of uh, tolerating alternative viewpoints, and that's exactly what a bigot is. And they, they absolutely cannot tolerate alternative views. They will do their uttermost to crush you if you have a, a, a view that doesn't entirely match their perspective. So yes, they're very, they're the very definition, def dictionary definition of bigots. Um, and yes, we surrender too much by calling them progressive. I don't call them progressive. I call myself progressive. I think I'm a progressive and I think they are regressive. They just call themselves progressive. And that's why it gets very complicated. Snowflake's another one because it sort of plays into their hands, I think, because it suggests that they're very empathetic people when, when yeah. often I find that's not the case at all. Yeah. And also it's an insult, isn't it? I mean, I don't see you're not going to persuade anyone by insulting them. And, you know, so I don't call people snowflakes and I never have. And. Uh, I don't think it's helpful to the discourse. And I think a lot of what I'm trying to promote through talking about the new Puritans and the way to tackle them is because they couch so much of what they do in virtue. Uh, it's, it's to, you know, to just be better than them, just to take a moral high ground, just to say, well, we will have these discussions. And, you know, I'm not going to start behaving as you do and throwing insults and trying to cancel people and trying to destroy their reputations and careers and lying about them online uh, if it gets if it helps me to get my way. We just shouldn't do all of that. I, I'm, I believe in a sort of, a t uh, I suppose, free speech, absolutely. And if you want to take the more robust approach, then fair, fair, that's up to you. I personally like the idea of civility. I think civility gets a long way. Whenever I do these episodes, so this podcast is about extreme ideologies and uh, cults a lot of the time, whether it be Scientology or, or Jehovah's Witnesses or something like that. And I sort of count woke as one of them, which is why I was so excited about your book coming out, because it obviously puts the, the two together how I see it as well as a sort of religious thing. But whenever I do these episodes, I get certain... Uh, you know, criticisms and people unsubscribing um, because I often don't do the way. Oh, yeah. And people put the reviews, one star reviews often. And it often says, so I want to sort of start with some of the things they say and see if you can sort of what you would say to them. And one of the main things I'm sure you've heard this before is, oh, you know, he's having all these right wing people on like Peter Boghossian, John McWater and you. Now, you're not I mean, are you right wing? No, I mean, what it depends what you mean by right wing. You know, I don't, I don't know if right and left even means anything. I think the the culture wars kind of killed them off. Um, I mean, if you were to take a textbook definition, I'm left wing. Uh, if you were to, you know, 
go through the, the many, many years of uh, writing on, on left-wing subjects. Uh, you know, if you were to... If you were to objectively look at my political viewpoints when it comes to economic issues, social issues, then, uh, you know, I would tally with the left on pretty much everything. Um, I suppose you could argue that I'm culturally conservative insofar as I do believe there is a value in tradition. I do believe in uh, um, uh, some quite traditional educational values, which I think are really key. Um, but then George Orwell had all of those views as well. And he no one really you know, claims that he was right wing. Um and in fact, there's a deep rooted history of social conservatism within left wing communities. Um, so I would say, uh, yeah, I mean, call me what you want, but it's not accurate to say that I'm right wing. But I don't think there's anything wrong with being right wing. This is the other thing. I don't consider it a slur. So if someone calls me that, it doesn't upset me. Um, I just don't think it's technically accurate. Um, and I think accuracy is important. And uh, too often people are sort of dismissed and put in their little tribes or their silos and they, people say you know that this person is just a right-wing person therefore we don't have to listen to what he or she has to say and that's not helpful at all i will talk to anyone of any political persuasion because i think it's really valuable to hear what people have to say and also because i'm not sufficiently arrogant to think that i'm right about everything yeah well i mean on this podcast there what some of the people have been right-wing i think gad sad is right-wing james Lindsay, I th who's i think you quote in the book he's probably right wing now isn't he and i i you'd have to ask them i I, <laughs> I don't know to be honest but i'm less interested in that because when it comes to the culture war it's not a the reason why people misapprehend the culture war so much is they think it's about left and right and it just isn't it really isn't you know most of the i mean you can't really be a traditional socialist uh and support a lot of the uh what we call the woke ideology it's incoherent the woke movement is obsessed with middle class concerns it isn't concerned at all with economic inequality or redressing redressing that so you know it's more a right-wing than a left-wing movement frankly um but if you want to do that if you want to start pigeonholing these and trying to comprehend it through a right-left dichotomy i don't think it's helpful because what we're really talking about here is the struggle between liberty and authority uh, and that's what that's what the culture the, the present day culture war is about um and it is a distraction to start getting into the right-left thing it's also if, if you go if you go in it if you go towards it in that with that lens in mind, you will misunderstand it. And that's one of the things I've, you know, there's a chapter in my book about uh, the, the way in which um, the woke ideologues have successfully uh, seized the mantle of the left, or if, I suppose have effectively infected the left. So it's become uh, increasingly difficult to disentangle the two. But we have to because, you know, I, m genuinely, authentically left wing people don't support this stuff. You know, because you'll know you'll notice that so many of the, the the woke activists, the loudest, the the ones who screech the most, tend to have double barrel names, tend to be privately educated, tend to come from those kind of no offense, um, but tend to come from that sort of background, <laughs> quite opulent background, and and uh, they, this stuff hasn't caught on in working class communities at all. Do you think? Do you think uh, people who are struggling to feed their kids and find a job? In, in a rundown area are really going to be bothered about what your pronouns are? Do you think they care? No, and, and I should just say for people who don't know, I mean, Andrew taught at uh, my school, so I'm, not, I'm, I'm a privately educated person. I think that's what you meant with no offence. I don't have a double-barreled name, though, but uh, but but it, it is a point, and that's why I see it. That's why it winds me up so much, because I have so many friends from that private, posh school who are, you know, of various different minority backgrounds, 
all of them are lawyers and accountants and extremely successful. It makes no difference. I, I, I feel extremely. I feel like there is a, there is privilege. Of course, there is. But it's because I was born into a middle class family with you know everything I could have needed in terms of comfort and everything. Um, how how has that move happened? How has the move from caring about socialist issues like money moved to the identity things? I wish I knew. I suppose it's because it's easier, isn't it? I suppose because politics became a careerist idea, and you know. You know, the, the Labour Party used to have so many people from working class backgrounds. People, I'm talking about the parliamentarians here, people who had worked in all sorts of industries and types of jobs. And uh, now it's not really like that. It's predominantly middle class people who do a PPE at Oxford and then they, they go into Parliament. And that's so you're bound to get a different kind of representation. I mean, Labour isn't really a working class party now at all. I mean, recently, Keir Starmer has been coming out against striking workers. You know, and that's one of the fundamental principles of the Labour movement is the right to withdraw your labour. I mean, the clues in the name, they're the Labour Party. So, you know, I, I don't know how it's happened. I, I think it's easier. I think it's very corporate. I mean, this is the other thing. This is a corporate movement. This is a movement that is supported by all major corporations. Quite how anyone rectifies being on the left to supporting uh, all of the major, corp- you know, multi-billion dollar corporations is quite beyond me. But um, that's, it has happened. I suppose it's an easy, it's easier to, you know, make a declaration about pronouns or put a black square on your Twitter account or to fly a rainbow flag, that is easier than paying your workers properly, making sure that people have proper working conditions. Uh, And it's certainly easier than uh, addressing economic inequality. Uh, You know, why would corporations want to do that? They're out to make money Uh, and they're all woke. So, you know, it's um, and that's why I've tried to sort of compare it to a religious movement, because I really think that's what it is. It's 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 a movement that is propagated by the elites in society it's it works in their interests and they will continue to perpetuate it as long as they can and they've been remarkably successful because they have a lot of money and they're making a lot of money one of one of the lines that stood out to me uh, in in your book because i've always seen i think the clear picture is this is sort of bullying under the guise of righteousness but you also picked up on something more nuanced which is young people conforming under the guise of rebellion yeah that's what that that's what this movement does it allows both because Everyone knows we've all been teenagers and we all know what it's like. You have an urge to rebel and you have an equally uh, uh, powerful urge to conform, which is why people all dress the same and they, they don't want to be seen to be saying to say things that are uh, out, beyond the Overton window of whatever teenage group you're in. Um, and the woke movement allows you to conform and rebel. You can say, I'm pushing back against the establishment, uh, but what you're doing is supported by all major corporations, all major political parties, you know, it's, it's the, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, you know, this is not, it's, it's, it's just not, it's not countercultural, is it? It's not. Yeah. I don't know how they get away with thinking that's cool. It's, it's, I suppose it's a zero risk rebellion, isn't it? Yeah, it's an odd one. It's so establishment. This is what I don't understand. The woke movement is so clearly the establishment. You know, it's 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 Biden Biden's administration. It's 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 all of the big the big tech giants. It's all of the corporations. It's everyone. It's all the managerial class. And and you're and you know you're saying, oh yeah, I'm a real rebel, and you're cheering on, you know, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. It's so weird that 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 you can't see the the cognitive dissonance involved in that. So I think part of this is about trying to get back to the 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 truth you can't just call yourself countercultural uh because you use the words because you say that you are you have to actually do something that is anti-establishment 
Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Tell me about this friend of yours that you start the book with and calls you a Nazi. What, do you want a name? (laughs) (laughs) You don't need the name, no. No, well, look, I mean, so much of what has happened with this culture over the past 10 years has, has meant that so many people have lost friends, sometimes even family members, simply for saying what we all knew to be true up until five minutes ago. Everyone has, uh, People are being punished for being honest by the people who, you know, either have bought into this stuff and genuinely believe it or understand that for purposes of self-preservation, they have to go along with it. And so I wanted to start the book with an anecdote. It's happened to me many times. I've lost many friends. I've uh, uh, many friends who I used to have 10 years ago don't talk to me anymore and they don't talk to me because I've been honest about things like there are differences between men and women. Uh, or that I don't think you can coherently call yourself left-wing and vote in favour of the EU, which is a uh, a major pro-corporate trading bloc. So just saying what they know to be true uh, has has created these rifts. And so I just started, just because with that, that was such a, a bizarre evening because I'd gone out with two friends and we were drinking and having fun and it was all fine until he snapped halfway through and 
started screaming at me, scream, I mean, literally screaming at me that I was a Nazi and I couldn't work. And I was try- I thought it was a joke at first when we got through that period and I realized he was sincere. I tried to get out of him what, what he meant by that. And he started saying things like, you know, well, you've written for this, you've written for Spiked and I don't like Spiked. And I'm like, okay, so, right. You're gonna have to give me more than that. Uh, then it was about a, a, a video I wrote, um, uh, a satirical video, which mocked a viewpoint that he supports. And it, it was like, so what you're, I mean, when you boil it down, what it is, is we had slight points of political disagreement. But in his head, that makes me a, na- a Nazi. I mean, this is in, insane. And and I suppose the book is my attempt to understand how we can get to that point. How can how can an intelligent person say something that, that if they stop to consider it for a moment, would know it cannot be true? And I suppose part of the answer is religion. You know, it's, it's you know, like Stephen Weinberg used to say about, you know, with religion, it, you know, it, without religion, you would have good people doing good things and bad people doing bad things. But if you want good people to do bad things, that takes religion. And that is, of course, I mean, it's a truism, but it's real, isn't it? Um, and so you have all these activists who behave just terribly. I mean, they, I've seen such dehumanizing, horrendous, uh, vicious, often violent, or at least with the, with overtones of violence uh, in their behavior. And they think or proclaim to be uh, the good guys. They proclaim to be on the right side of history. And that is a really difficult thing to kind of reconcile and get your head around. And so that's what I'm trying to explore in the book. I'm trying, I'm hoping that I can explain why that has happened. But I'm also trying to be optimistic. I think, you know, groupthink is something that we all have a tendency towards. There's no great insight there. I think people have known that for many centuries. And so it's about recognizing that one has become caught in that man trap and I don't give up on anyone and I think some of them are really extreme and it's more like a process of de-radicalization at that point um but there are many people who are on the fence and there are many people who are I'd say most people most sort of decent uh people who are going along with this stuff because it uses the language that sounds appealing and it sounds very progressive and forward thinking and they haven't really spent much time thinking about it or reading about it uh, you know, the very, for instance, the, the very lazy assumption that the, the trans right movements of today is the same as the uh, gay rights movements of the 1980s, uh, which is a very lazy and, and frankly, 100% incorrect uh, approach. And, uh, you know, people don't want to be caught out again, like all those people who went against gay marriage back in the day, who said that gay people were perverts or the rest of it, they now look f- foolish with the benefit of hindsight. You know, when I first, I remember working in a Uh, at a a receptionist at the National Blood Service and I said I think we gay marriage should happen we should we should be able to get married and the person I said this to laughed just so loud she thought it was the most hilarious thing she'd ever heard and she ran off and told other people that I'd said this ridiculous thing and that was only what 2000 and probably 2003 that you know and that was what I was saying was such an outlandish proposition to so many people but now people realize that those people look bad uh, in in retrospect and um so people don't want to get caught out like that and i guess that's what i guess that's part of it but who knows i don't i can't read anyone's mind i don't know
It's so it's so funny how quickly that changed because I remember it was about 13 years ago I was working as a camp counsellor at one of those Camp America things, you know, in California at a lake, that kind of thing, looking after kids. And the week before it started, all the counsellors, we were doing sort of games to sort of get on with, to bonding, you know, all that kind of thing. Um, and they, would, they did this game where they would sort of ask everybody what they thought about a particular issue and everybody had to stand on one side if they thought this or one side. Or the other. And one was, should gay people have the right to get married? And I stood on the side of yes and literally and I, I hate telling this this story actually because it makes me sound like I, I think I'm some sort of I don't know clever righteous person but you the, are. the entire well thank you I am <laughs> the other 40 people or so all stood on either no or not sure and this was like Californian liberal people looking after kids at a camp you know these are like hippies almost and even they wouldn't go as far as to say yes and I felt embarrassed at the time now I would imagine almost all of them would would say yes wouldn't well, they? not not only that they would all say yes and say that they would always have said yes and yes. that anyone who doesn't say yes is in fact evil <laughs> and should lose their job and never never be allowed to work again. And of course, that's not helpful either. It's perfectly possible to disagree with gay marriage and not be a homophobe. Lots of gay people disagree with gay marriage. When, when gay marriage was first mooted, Stonewall was dead against it. Gay activists said, no, we will not have this. We will not be drawn into your heteronormative way of life. So um, th- this weird sense, I mean, this is the other hilarious thing about, about woke people, if we want to call them that is this sense that they are so certain of themselves. They don't think, they don't realise what they're going to look like to historians of the future. They are going to look insane and ridiculous. Um, I've absolutely no doubt about that. And they also think that they, they would always have been on the right side of, of things. But the thing about those who buy into this ideology is they're not free thinkers. They are herd thinkers. They are group thinkers. And they will go along and they're conformists ultimately. Which means that had they been born during the time when all middle-class wealthy people supported slavery they would have supported slavery it would have con- they would have considered it appalling the idea that you should abolish slavery abolitionists would have been the free thinkers would have been the counterculturalists the people who can think outside the box um and yeah you know i bet you you get a gathering of young woke people and you say you know if you would have been born back in the day you know 150 200 years ago would you have supported slavery they'll say no we would have been up there chanting saying no and they wouldn't they would have been the ones or you know with slaves in the house getting them to do all their work. It comes back to that, that risk thing, doesn't it? Because there's, there's no risk right now to come out with a lot of woke views. It gets you social capital, doesn't it? But back in the day, well, 200 years ago, if you were somebody who said, no, I don't think we should have slaves, I mean, you're risking your life. I don't think people realise quite how hard it would be to stand up in certain places and say, we shouldn't have slaves anymore. We should abol- abolition. You, you could be killed for that, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's why, you know, it's good to put those things into perspective. We don't face those kind of uh, struggles at the moment in terms of the severity... But there is a parallel insofar as to be uh, a a feminist who makes a, 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 a who who argues in favour of women's only spaces is to open yourself up to threats of violence and rape, and that is just the truth. If you make those statements online, that's what you're going to get, um, and you're probably not going to work. You might be fired. You know all of these things because it's happened to so many women. Um, and that's all it takes. It just takes a few examples for people to shut up. People are you know rightly scared of the bullies of the critical social justice movement. They are scary people. Um, so it is it is hard for people to speak. I mean, I, I just always get messages from people saying, I really agree with what you're saying, but I couldn't, I can't say it myself. I get it all the time. And wh- why is that? It, it can't be that there's a big hoax and everyone's trying to hoax me. That must be something that people, that people are, are scared about, you know? You, you say that, you know, future generations will look back and sort of 
laugh at these people or find them ridiculous. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I could be wrong. I mean, it, it could be that they'll win out and, and we will be living in an authoritarian state in, in another 34 years. I don't know. I don't know the future. But like, I mean, but the, the you know, if if the liberal project wins out, you know, if the liberal values win out, then we will be back to some semblance of, uh, of normality and we can, yeah, we'll be able to laugh about it. Then. But I don't know. I'm not Nostradamus. I should just say that. I feel the same way that we're sort of right, but aren't we then doing the same thing that they're doing by being so certain? What if about the genders? What, what if we're, do you ever think, oh, maybe I'm wrong about that and there's some extra sciencey stuff that I don't know about? I always assume I'm wrong about all sorts of things because I must be. Everyone, all of us must be. Um, I mean, the very fact that I've already said I don't know what the future holds is a concession that the, the activists of the critical social justice movement won't make. So we're already a step ahead of them there. Um, uh, I no, I always question, and 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 not only that. If if evidence is produced uh, that debunks what I believe, then I will change my mind accordingly. I, you know, you, we have to go with evidence-led epistemology. Um, if if or, I mean, you know, one of the things that activists claim a lot is that sex is a spectrum. All of the evidence and the scientific consensus tells us that it isn't. Um, but if evidence were to be produced that said that it was, then fine, I would change my mind. It's going to get harder though because ideologues have managed to infiltrate positions of authority so now you have a situation where even medical journals are publishing statements like sex is uh, is a spectrum and that's a problem it means that even scientists are now willing to disregard science and truth uh, for ideological reasons that's going to make it very hard to make judgments uh, in the future it's what they call a legitimation crisis when you can't you can no longer trust figures of authority and that's why we really we really do need to root this out because at the moment, if I want expertise, the last people I'm going to go to are those in, in universities, in higher education, because they are so, uh, so many of them are so ideologically driven. And you catch them in lies all the time, but they don't see it as lies because they don't believe in truth or the notion of truth. They believe in multiple truths, multiple ways of knowing. Um, that means that they're perfectly willing. And I've seen them. They'll contradict themselves. They'll, they'll, they'll say, say something that is against what is observable reality if it supports their ideological worldview. And that's... and. You know, if it were just some nutters online, it would be easier to deal with. But it's professors, politicians, journalists, commentators, scientists, even. That's uh, that's where the problems really start. That is a problem because I suppose to, you know, I'm always having a go at people who just rely on faith and things like that. But to an extent, we all rely on faith unless we're experts in every field. I rely on scientists and doctors to tell me, for example, that the earth is round. I'm sure there's some relatively not that complicated experiment I could do to show that it is as well. I don't know. But that kind of thing or that the moon is this distance away and the sun is that size, like, that's faith to an extent. I, I, I hope that they're right. So if the medical books are changing and saying that sex or or this thing called gender which i'm not entirely sure what it means or is is a spectrum then shouldn't you and i have to start going oh well maybe okay well then you know how do i know it's not now well that's the problem is you have to you know we all all of us defer to the judgment of experts and that's how the system should work um when, when that no longer works i mean you always have to be questioning i think even even of expertise but that's why the scientific method is so wonderful because it's always trying to disprove itself, which means that they can show you they're working out. They can show you evidence. And uh, and most ideas can be conveyed in a relatively simple way that even a layman can understand. And I'm a layman in all sorts of ways about all sorts of subjects. So I depend on, on that. Um, but when I see evidence uh, that, that academics are lying uh, for ideological purposes, and I don't even know if it's lying. I mean, it could even be that they are so, you know, immersed in their in their religion 
uh, that they think there is a truth to their faith or that they are willing to represent their faith as though it were truth. And at that point, uh, it is really, really difficult to know what to do. But luckily at the moment, we still have enough uh, experts in all of these various fields who are able to show you uh, why things are the way they are and, and are able to provide evidence for their claims, you know. Uh, and there is such a disregard for the truth among these figures of authority. I mean, some of the common ones that we've seen, do you remember the uh, the uh, reporter for CNN, I think it was, in uh, Kenosha, who uh, was talking about this largely peaceful protest? Well, there's a backdrop of burning buildings and cars right behind him. And that's a very small example of what we're talking about. Is There's a kind of... It's not just that that was misrepresenting the truth. It's that there was a sense in which they could do that flagrantly because once we've said the words, it becomes truth. So if I describe something as largely peaceful, that makes it so. That's a very dangerous situation, but most people can see through it. And by that point, you're into Orwellian territory where you know you're just parroting the, the necessary shibboleths, but you you also know they're not real. And I think that's what that's where we are with, with most of this. I mean, n- most people who live in the UK today uh, have enough experience to understand that we don't live in a society where racism, fascism, homophobia are the norm. We know that those things are aberrations and those things are hugely uh, frowned upon by virtually everyone. And when they do emerge, uh, we balk and we, we, we don't feel comfortable and we, we address it and we, we, we don't stand for it. And most people know that that is the experiential reality of living in the UK today. That is not to say that homophobia, racism, etc. don't exist. The point I'm making is that when where they do exist, they're very much on the margins. And uh, and yet the activists will tell us that this is the most oppressive time we have ever lived in, that uh, we live in a society which is undergirded by white supremacy at every level, that every human interaction, to quote Robin D'Angelo, has a racist element to it. And we all know this not to be true. And they can dress this up in their jargon as much as they like. But this is something that you're not going to be able to persuade people of ultimately. And if people are going to perform these rituals and talk about their white privilege or whatever it is that they are asked to do they will do so in a shallow way they will do so knowing that they don't sincerely believe it but they just want a quiet life they just want an easy life they'll go along with it with this happens all the time i talk to people who have to go sit through unconscious bias sessions unconscious bias training they know it doesn't do anything because there have been sufficient numbers of studies into this to show that it's it has no utility but they'll do it because what's the point what do you want an argument instead Or, or do you want to just do that day get a day off work even sit in a room and listen to this person blather on and then just get on with your job. And that that will be the root of least resistance is our greatest enemy, I think, you know, because people don't want the struggle. They don't want the conflict. We're all conflict averse. I had a similar thing happen, you know, trying to get documentaries sold and all these things. I brought ideas to different production companies. In the end, it was, you know, about 200 or 300 different production companies around the UK that I went to and told my ideas for new documentaries. I'd already made ones for BBC and HBO. And every single one, like there wasn't one that didn't say this, which was halfway through, you know, we'd love to take these ideas. We really like them. But, you know, unfortunately, you'll have to be off camera and we'll have to get somebody from a minority background on camera to replace you just anyone and all of those people as well they would still sort of laugh about it like sorry about this it's ridiculous we know how ridiculous this is you know it's like a dance we all have to follow isn't it it's it's, it's worse than that isn't it in a way because we have now racial uh discrimination as a as a as an open policy right that's what that is uh that is discriminating against you because of the color of your skin and now we laugh it off we shouldn't laugh that off it's absolutely outrageous and it's it's um and and everyone knows that it's wrong I mean, everyone does. Even the people who might benefit from that system will know that it's wrong. And, and you know, we've just got to come to a point where people are a little braver. I mean, look, if, you know, had you in that situation said, well, I, 
I think that's a real problem. I think it's a really illiberal thing that you're doing. They could have been, you could have been branded as a racist for saying that. But standing up for liberal values doesn't make you a racist. It makes you the opposite. It's hard. It's one of those things where when it happens to you, you know, because I wasn't, I don't think I was woke or anything, but I was a lot quieter about it until it started happening to me. And then gradually over the years, I'm sure you've noticed as well, maybe if it's happened in some way, it's affected another friend of yours that they might start speaking more about it. We're all quite, I suppose, selfish in that sense. Well, it's, it's not selfishness particularly. It's just a lack of understanding. It's so much easier to understand something when you've been through it. There is a value to, to, to going through something uh, and comprehending it. You know, I mean, who was it in America? Was it, I think it was Dick Cheney even, who was so sort of very against gay marriage and, and, and very sort of traditionalist on that issue. And then I think his daughter came out and suddenly his, his policies changed. I think I'm talking about the right guy there. But that, you know, it's mentioned in one of Michael Moore's books. So I think it, I think it was anyway. But that, you know, that's a good example of, of uh, when something does happen to you, you do feel it more strongly and you do wake up and, and you are more alert to the situation. This is why I never disregard people's experience. I mean, they talk a lot, the activists talk a lot about lived experience. Uh, and there is a problem with that because your own experience cannot be extrapolated to make broader generalizations about the whole country. You can't say because I experienced homophobia a couple of times this year, that means the whole country is riven with homophobia. That's not how that works. Um, so I mistrust lived experience as a form of evidence, as an evidential threshold. I don't think it's sufficient. However, that said, there is a lot to be learned from talking to people who have been through uh, things that you haven't been through. I, that, that I not only will, will concede that, I think it is a, a good thing. I mean, this is why I spend all my time reading books and articles by people I don't fundamentally agree with. I'm not interested in, in this echo chamber culture. I'm not interested in sealing myself off from alternative viewpoints. I, I want to hear them. Um, so yeah, I think um, I'm, I'm banging on about lived experience now, but I talk about it a lot in the book. And I, I really worry about this idea that we're in a world in which, in a world which is understood as being uh, uh a sort of collection of multiple ways of knowing and multiple truths um and that those truths are dependent upon your position in society on the basis of group identity this thing about standpoint epistemology this idea that you have a, a greater insight into how the world works if you are within a marginalized group within that world all of this stuff is just faith-based entirely it's it's anti-science uh it's anti-enlightenment and we need to push back against it because it has to be a shared understanding of truth but like i say hear each other out more discussion more conversation that's what we need do you know the british podcast awards and i, and I want to say this publicly because it drives me uh, you know this is a podcast they they do 66 percent of their vote and the british public podcast award is important for podcasters because it's um they basically got a monopoly on the industry and it's a huge publicity occasion if you if you're nominated loads of people come to your podcast it's 66 percent weighted in favor of, of of value whatever that means and diversity so only 33 percent is about how good a podcast is right and that's a problem Obviously, that's a problem. And, and you know, all of this has come about 40 years out of date. You know, there were clear systemic problems uh, in, in, in the country with with regards to homophobia, racism, sexism, etc. Um, and we had reached, we were doing so well. You know, the Liberal Project was, you know, no, it wasn't perfect. There were still problems. But the momentum was there. Everything was going in the right direction. We'd reached a point where we were nearly at the point of colorblindness, you know, where, where you know, you would, you would, everyone was just treating people irrespective of the color of their skin um and then this project came along and just scuppered the whole damn thing and it's really really sad because now we have a hyper racialized society uh, a society that sees bigotry and discrimination even where it doesn't exist in absolutely every corner and um 
It's really sad. I wrote an angry email to the British podcast. Well, I've never done something like that. I wrote a really mm. angry email and I said, please, can you explain to me what, why these particular podcasts were selected? And like every single one that was nominated, I was very bitter, by the way, that I wasn't. And I spent money to enter. So obviously I'm, I'm a bit bitter about it. But every single one was like, you know, a black person's guide to this, a gay person and a Jewish person do this. Every, that was the title of every podcast that got nominated, like almost everyone. It was insane. Yeah, it's so boring. I mean, you, you're going to have to realise that, you know, all of the plaudits, I mean, it's the same with the, you know, we've just got the Edinburgh Fringe is on at the moment. You know, the comedy awards will be going to people who tow the ideological line, as they have done for the past few years. And a lot of second rate acts have been pushed up as a result of that. And and everyone knows this. You know, this is no great secret. Um, and it's just boring. It's, you know, it's, it means that these various creative industries are rewarding mediocrity and a lack of imagination. That's what they're doing. Or anything which is remotely free thinking or or kind of or, or focuses on the quality and the graft of the thing uh, rather than the, the message that, that whether it's got the voguish message, you know, those things are just going to get sidelined. And that's that's it's a great shame. That's why we are in a bit of a creative crisis when it comes to um, art in this country. That's why there are that's why if I want to read a novel. Uh, I'm going to make sure it, that it was published before I was born, just to make sure that it's going to be okay. You know, there are some good novelists writing today, uh, but on the whole, um, uh, people were better at it before I was born. <laughs> you know, and it's the same with all creative industries. I've, I don't get much time for fiction these days, but I've sort of dipped into it a few times recently, and I've found exact some of it, some stuff that's very popular is really tame and yeah, awful. really bad. Yeah, absolutely. It's annoying. Um, tell me a bit about... Actually, before I get... I was going to get on to the Puritans, but tell me what can people do? Because people listening, they might want some advice. What can they start to do to push back against this? Um, okay. Well, it's about being a bit braver. And it's about when you're told to attend these ridiculous training sessions at work or whatever it might be, or if you're told to write your pronouns in your... I don't know, in your email or announce it at the start of a meeting... You raise an objection and you say, I don't want to do this. And these are my reasons. What if they get fired? And I mean, you and me won't get, we can't get fired in that sense. We probably won't for that. Well, you should, well, if you were to get fired for that, I mean, there would be a tribunal, wouldn't there? And that's, uh, you know, that's what happened to Maya for starter. Uh, it's happened to all sorts of people who have had to go to the free speech union for support. Uh, and the free speech union is an excellent organization that does support people and usually wins. Right. So because it's not legal. You can't fire someone because they're refusing to announce their pronouns. Um, and that, it doesn't happen that often. Um, what normally happens is you just, you know, you just get an argument and then the person who raised the complaint may not get promoted next time. That's normally the kind of thing that actually people are scared of. They're less scared of just getting outright fired. Um, but you've got to have those conversations and you've got to, you've got to make things a bit difficult. Um, because until there is that tipping point, it's not going away. It's only it's only going to get worse. We know that appeasement doesn't work, right? So, it, we, you know, we just need more people to, to speak out and accept that life's going to be a little harder for them. And I know that sounds awful because, like you say, there's no consequences with me speaking out. I can say what I want. Um, I, and, and if I was still a teacher... The thing is, I know myself. I know what I'm like. I still would. But I'm sure I wouldn't be promoted very far in teaching today. Um, because I would be perceived to be a troublemaker. What was it like? Because my my school is probably the the school I was at. I don't know if we can mention it or not. We probably can say what the name does it make. Does yeah, make a difference? I don't see why not. But, yeah, Merchant Taylors. Um, Michael McIntyre went there. So 
what was it like somewhere like that? Because that is a place that should be, just like Prince Harry should be, sort of the opposite of woke because it's a posh, private, you know, ruddy-duddy place. Yeah, sort of. But then when I was there, the headmaster who was there was like to think of himself as progressive and he used to talk about how we must praise the students all the time that was the key just constant praise even if they were terrible and they just took the piss out of him because they they saw him as a complete soft touch and he, and so he had no authority and he had no respect uh and you know the, so you do need particularly in a, a school environment where where people are being socialized you do need a, some sort of conservative traditional ideas of education you have to Otherwise, it doesn't it, it just doesn't work. Um, but this was before I mean, I was a teacher before this entire movement began. None of it, none of us had really thought, uh, uh, comprehended this idea that this could ever emerge. Uh, it's all been very, very rapid. Uh, it's a development out and away from the political correctness movement, which I did live through and I did experience. But it's not the same by any means. It's hugely different. I mean, there's a chapter in the book about the differences. And, you know, that's I don't think any of us saw this coming. I think if you'd have said to me or any of us 15 years ago you know we are going to reach the point very soon when the police are investigating people for non-crime and they're doing that they're investigating thousands of people a year arresting people for jokes they tell uh, we're going to reach a point where science journals are going to start talking about how sex is a spectrum and you know uh, you know people are going to have to declare their pronouns before meetings all of this stuff um or that people would lose their jobs for saying that sex is real uh or that people will be trained in corporate sessions that if they are white, they are inherently racist. Um, no one would have believed that this would have happened. No one. I, I don't think any, even the people who later became the activists, no one would have thought. So it's like the emergence of a brand new religion that no one could anticipate. Um, and that means, I mean, that's scary in a way, because since this only happened in the past 12 years, I mean, we are literally talking no more than that. Uh, although its its origins date back a lot further, and I talk about that in the in the book. Um, the roots of the thing but I'm talking about really the proliferation of what we now see as the woke movement very very recent and very very rapid and it spreads largely by intimidation people are scared so they go along with it and that's how all terrible movements of the past have, have operated and the problem is if it, if it arises so quickly where's it going to go next where are we going to be in 12 years it's going to be things that you and I possibly can't anticipate unless unless we take a stand and we push back and we stop it and if we don't do that the well, the future will be unimaginable. The future always is unimaginable to an extent. But there will be things that you'll never be able to have anticipated, ever. And uh, it's just it's just not worth the risk, is it? Maybe we can go into, in a very layperson way, I mean, you talk of the, the Frankfurt School and Foucault. Just for, I want to keep everyone listening on, on board, who, you know, because some people are sort of not that into this and they want to understand it. What, what's, what's the basis of this stuff? Okay, well, a lot of people trace a lot of the origins of the woke movement to the, the, uh, the French postmodernists of the 1960s. You're talking people like Michel Foucault, Jean-François Lyotard, um, uh, Jacques Derrida, um, so pe people who developed, and, you know, and this is very simplistic because they, you know, they, they had conflicts with each other and disagreed on various points. But the, the, the broad principle and largely sort of encapsulated by Foucault's work is this idea of a nexus between power and language and the idea that society is, is undergirded by these various networks of power and that power isn't necessarily a top down phenomenon. It, it goes in all directions. Uh, and 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 this understanding more broadly that the post postmodernists had that our understanding of reality is wholly constructed through the language with which we express it. And that's important because what that means is that if you change 
the words and the meanings of words, you change what is actually real. That is the sort of mainstay of the modern woke movement. And so all of this can be traced to those kinds of origins. But it gets complicated because there are elements, too, of the, the, the school of thought of the Frankfurt School. The Frankfurt School being uh, various academics of, of, of roughly the same time, people like uh, Marcuse, Horkheimer, Adorno, who uh, really had a mistrust of popular culture and the potential for popular culture to corrupt the masses, the sort of bread and circuses argument, I suppose. And um, that is something that you also see retained in the critical social justice movement of the present. Um, th this idea that we must control what the people say, the words that they say, the, the, you know, there's so much emphasis on, you know, cutting out problematic scenes on, on, on programs on Netflix or, or making sure that certain films don't get made if they don't have the correct form of representation or the correct message. All of this stuff, you can see echoes from uh, the Frankfurt School. And also the, uh, Herbert Mar uh, Marcuse wrote an essay called Repressive Tolerance in which he talked about how, you know, we must, uh, we must reserve the right uh, to shut down uh, points of view that are intolerant to us uh, from his perspective right-wing points of view and he's very explicit about that and although the, uh, the, the 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 present day social justice disciples don't tend to cite Marcuse or the Frankfurt School they tend to cite Foucault a lot um, we can see these things echoing through uh, and it's and it's really it's not conspiratorial it's just that these ideas seize control of academia I mean when I was in uh, at the university Foucault was deified people just they rarely read him but they read about him and they talked a lot about him and and um and so that idea that power structure power is perpetuated through language it was key to the study of English literature because because of the deconstructive approach to the text it meant that what you were doing is you're not reading the text for its poetry for its numinous nature for for its art what you're reading the text for is to try and tease out uh, the moral problematic elements of the author you know you're effectively doing a kind of moral detective work you know you're saying oh well we shouldn't read dh lawrence anymore because his representation of women is problematic and perpetuates male privilege for instance right and if you reduce art and literature to whether it perpetuates power or challenges power then you don't understand art and literature and yet that was endemic in the study of english literature at the time that i was studying it that's how i was encouraged to do it i was taught and encouraged to take a philistine approach to my own subject that's a huge problem and we are now reaping the the, the costs of that because what happens in the universities seeps out into popular culture at large eventually it's just taken a while but that's why you often hear them talk about how jokes of a certain kind will normalize hatred what they're saying there is language language perpetuates power structures in the real world this is the same idea it's just it's a sort of half apprehended understanding of Foucault. And I'm not saying that these people read Foucault and then apply it to society. That's not what's going on here. What I'm saying is that they've imbibed some of the ideas that have become fashionable and they don't necessarily know uh, the origins. It's like any religion. I mean, how many uh, Christians read the Bible or are familiar with the, the holy texts? You know, some are, but not all. I am because I went to a school full of nuns, but a lot of people aren't. So, you know, that's... In a nut, was that just really boring? I'm, try I'm trying to explain it in a kind of, in a kind of straightforward way. It's a simplistic uh, rendering, by the way. You know, the, the, these are very complex ideas. You've got, because you've, you've got to get it to a point where you know everyone can still enjoy what you've said, and I think you've managed that. But also without people then going, what? But he missed out an important thing. You know, you've said oh, that you know missed out a million things. I mean, uh, you know, that's one of the problems with writing a book like this is 
I'm not, you know, this is really, my book is about trying to make this accessible. Be- because the, 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 the high priests of the, the, this movement, the New Puritans, rely on the fact that people don't understand the jargon. They hide their bad ideas through elaborate jargon. So there's no point in me just repeating that because you can't tackle it. I have to make it accessible. And I hope that in the book, that's what I do. I mean, that's, that was certainly my aim. No, I mean, I can read and understand it. And that's the litmus test. It means pe- most people. That's what I had in my mind. Will Andrew understand this book? <laughs> as long as I, everybody needs to have that as like the barometer of, of yeah. how their book, whether it's accessible or not. Exactly. So who were you know we talk about the puritans who would let's go into some some history it's the witch hunting all that sort of stuff yeah well i I draw a very clear distinction between the puritans of new england and the puritans of today uh and i'm using it as an analogy you know i'm trying to you know the phrase puritan has long been used as a a, a, an analogy for those who have a uh, um precisionist and uh, priggish uh and censorious nature there's nothing new in that you know i haven't invented that and that goes back a long, long time. The trouble is, of course, when you mention, when I talk about the new Puritans, I, I've had a lot of people online, religious people largely saying, oh, you just slagging off the Puritans. And I'm, actually, I'm very, very clear that there is a distinction between the Puritans of old and the Puritans of today. Uh, not least because Puri- the, the, the actual Puritans, the, the ones who uh, sailed for America and, and uh, you know, they established their colonies, had a real sense of their own unworthiness before God. And that's not the same as the new Puritans who believe that they can do no wrong. Uh, it's, it's very, very different. But the reason why I've, I've, I've chosen that title is also because I see I've taken a specific moment in history, which is the witch hunts in Salem. And I open and close the book. I bookend the book, in other words, with the, this, this story of what happened in Salem because of that small Puritan community and the hysteria uh, that occurred there. And I see so many parallels between what happened there and what we are experiencing today. And again, to emphasize, I'm not smearing the puritans as being uh you know these people who were susceptible to hysteria uh, in fact they weren't you know th- this was a a uh, an aberration that they, they, they didn't hunt witches in the way that uh, uh the christians did in europe at the same time th- th- this was a mistake and most of the people who were involved in it repented very soon after and said oh, you know they knew that they'd done something wrong but what i'm interested in the way in which a community and i see it as a microcosm of what we're experiencing today a small community in in um uh, in Massachusetts in the in the 17th century suddenly be- became convinced over a very short period just two years that they were that there were witches there were witches everywhere and uh, it was all um, and everyone believed it or at least everyone knew that they had to believe it because if they didn't if they didn't go along with the narrative they would be the next to be accused and it was these young children who were just pointing and crying witch on whoever they liked and what is notable about it is that the elites were the ones who perpetuated it. It was the judges, it was the magistrates, it was the ministers who said that this is real and we have to believe in these visions and we have to believe in the lived experience of the girls. And they used they had a phrase for it, they called it spectral evidence. Um, but it's what we call lived experience. And I see them very much as, as being the same thing. Um, it means that the truth of the girls was accepted because it was their truth. They didn't need any other evidence than their declaration that it, that, that it was so. And that's what's happening today. And, you know, we are all susceptible to groupthink, as I've said. Um, this was an extreme case. Um, but it also offers us, as a analogy, I suppose, it offers us a way out. You know, the reason why the hysteria came to an end is because enough people stood up and said, there are no witches. This isn't happening anymore. You know, and the, the uh, 
it really happened when they started accusing people in power. That was their mistake. And when they started, I mean, they, there was one case where they accused a man called Willard, um, who was a very powerful man. And the judges in the court actually said, I mean, we've got the transcripts of the court. The judges said, you must be mistaken. You must be talking about Constable Willard, who is currently in jail for witchcraft. Um, that's who you meant. Let's move on. Right. So, you know, he, there are all of these cases where one girl that were during the I mean, th- these girls would be screaming in the court, pointing and saying this woman's spirit is coming out and hitting us or pinching us. She's fly- she's flying up to the beam. She's perched on the beam, grinning at us. And they were the only ones who could see it. That was their lived experience. And it was accepted. Um, and there was one case, one trial uh, where a girl produced an, a, a broken off bit of a blade and said, this witch has just stabbed me with this and pulled out this blade in, in, in the in the court. And a man who was there said, well, that's from my knife. I broke it the other day and I, you were there and you saw me break it. I know that that to be true. And instead of saying, instead of the magistrate saying, well, that proves that this girl has just lied. They said, we need to move on. Let's pretend that didn't happen. So a lot of it, what, what really surprised me, the more I read about Salem, and I read a number of books about it because for a start, it's really fascinating. It's a fascinating story. But but the more I read, the more I realised that although people might have been convinced at the outset, because this was a community that did believe in the devil and the power of the devil to, to possess, um, a lot of them realised it wasn't true, I think, pretty soon. But they had, they had created a, a scenario, a hysterical atmosphere whereby to deny the lived experience of the girls was to put yourself at risk of being hanged and so it was in anyone's everyone's interest uh just in pure self-preservation to go along with it and i see i see us as being very much in the same situation we that's why i say we need to be braver and we need to stand up and say no there are no witches you know we don't live in a systemically racist society we don't live we don't live in a world where there are multiple sexes etc you know just just saying it and although you know obviously Salem was an extreme example. No one's at risk of being hanged. But, you know, it does take that courage to 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 say what you know to be true when to say the truth comes with a societal cost. That's the the message I'm trying to get across. And I, I just think it, it I think the Salem example offers an accessible means to understand that there was um, it's funny you mentioned pinching and I don't mean to be facetious, but there's a lot of pinching in old books and stuff isn't there you don't do you know <laughs> what i mean it was always pinching this oh he he doth pinched me or whatever and you don't hear much pinching nowadays no we need to bring back pinching don't we feels a bit too mischievous that's why you know i think uh i think maybe that maybe maybe when they said it they were imagining something a little more violent he's pinched me pinch must the word pinch must have changed over the years because you see it a lot don't you in the old books about oh he pinched me it's like when you read in shakespeare someone is described as naughty and you think, oh, they, they, they're like a bit saucy or a bit... And, and actually, naughty at that time meant something more severe, you know. Uh, and, and so it does throw you a little bit. Yeah. No, you're right. Well, there was a man squashed with a boulder because he didn't enter a plea or something that I read in your book. Yeah, that was Giles Corey. He was uh, a... He refused to admit that he was a witch. And they pressed him to death. I mean, they kept laying boulders onto his chest. Um, and apparently, his last words were more weight. He just wouldn't say it. I mean, that's I mean, that's the kind of courage that few people would have, you know, just that, you know, the, the, the but I suppose for the Puritans, you know, the, the reason why people like Rebecca Nurse, who is one of the, you know, the most respected women of the town who herself was hanged, 
One of the reasons she wasn't hanged is she couldn't lie because she knew that to lie was a mortal sin. She had that faith. And so, so therefore she couldn't say she was a witch because that would be to damn herself. And, and, and so she was hanged. Because actually the judges were incredibly lenient on those who confessed to witchcraft. Um, and that's one of the aspects of the Puritans, which is very different from the new Puritans, is that they had the capacity for mercy. And they really did believe in it. Um, but, you know, if you were someone like Rebecca Nurse, someone like Giles Corey, it wouldn't be possible because you believed in the afterlife and you believed in your mortal, immortal soul. And you didn't want to damn yourself to hell by, by saying things you knew not, knew not to be true. It's it's so sad actually looking back and, I, but also I think okay so what does this show us about like humanity because I think I think I'm right in saying I think you've got a slightly more positive outlook on humanity I might be wrong about that than than I do just because I think this is proof that we're scum and I think of like John Ronson's so you've been publicly shamed I think that we in general whenever we can we're like yeah get that person because then I look good compared to that but do you do you see that at all why were humans doing this kind of thing. I'm aware that uh, we have that capacity. Um, I suppose, yeah, I am more positive, I think. It doesn't come naturally to me, that kind of vengeful approach to life. So maybe it just says something about you, Andrew, that you... Uh, <laughs> no, I don't know. I, 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 um, I'm, I'm very conflict-averse, you see. So I, I'm, not, I, I'm not... And I suppose I assume that people are good as a default. Because I think people are more good than bad. And I think we, we are... Well, look, we're all a mixture of both, aren't we? We're all, we're, you know, we know that it's it's about it's what Solzhenitsyn says about you know the line of good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and um, and who would tear out a piece of his own heart? He's talking about how wouldn't it be easy if you could separate the world into the good people over here and the bad people over here, and you just get rid of the bad people? And that is the way that the new Puritans think, um, but that's not real. And we, you know, we all have. Well, look, this is a completely trite truism, but we all know that we all have. Uh, the capacity to do good and evil and I, I but i think that capacity for good is overwhelming within humanity and I, I i think ultimately the more i speak to people when you actually get people into a room i mean look twitter is not the place to make any kind of judgment on the moral compass of humankind when you get people into a room and you talk to them even the ones who were probably sending you threats the other day online uh you'll realize that most people are just boringly nice most people are just pretty decent most people you know, if they see someone fall in the streets, they'll, their instinct is to go and help them. It's, you know, the the the, the instinct to the, the the enjoyment that comes from inflicting pain on others, that kind of Schadenfreude or whatever. I don't think that's, I don't think that's the norm. I recognise that there are some people who are completely sociopathic or psychopathic, even who, you know, but I don't think they're the norm. And I th and I, I wouldn't want to live in a world where I thought they were. I, you know, and that's what the tragedy is. That's what it's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is that. I think it's really sad that we are so tribal now. We're, so, we're all at each other's throats over nothing, like over over imagined grievances, largely. Um, because actually, on both sides of the culture war, 99% of people agree. We don't want to live in a world where there's racism, sexism, homophobia, where people are treated differently because of their, their immutable characteristics. We don't want that world. We want a just world. We want a good world. Everyone agrees on that fundamental thing, but it's about how we get there. And the woke believe that it's about untangling these invisible power structures that only they can see and that they don't need evidence for. And the liberal side of the argument, my side of the argument, is that we redress those problems as and when they occur and we assess these things through evidence. And and we need to, you know, we need to be told see the things before we before we address them. And 
so really it's about getting to the same point uh just in different ways the problem is that the the critical social justice the new puritans their approach makes all of the things they care about a hundred times worse they are making our society more racist more homophobic more sexist they're driving us all apart not bringing us together and they're doubling down and they and they will continue to to regress and to pull our society back um but they don't understand what they are doing they think that they are making progress but can anyone really say since the uh, you know that storm of the summer of 2020 with the killing of george floyd and all that came with it can anyone really say that all of these issues have got better because i think the evidence is clear on that you know we are we're going into some very dark places here uh, you know who would have thought that there was a, there would be se racial segregation in schools at all now it hasn't happened often but you know it's happened a bit the american school in london segregating kids by skin color for after school activities the brentwood school in california segregating parents according to skin color who would have thought we would get there and this is just the beginning so and until we tackle this and say no that is never okay it might not be everywhere but it is never okay and it is never okay to compel people to speak in a way that they do not want to speak and you might say at the moment well it's just people recommending that you say your pronouns or add it to emails or, or say it in meetings well that's the first step on on the road to compelled speech we at the moment have societal pressure people feel nervous about not going through that ritual not performing that ritual but all that ritual is is a declaration that you believe in this thing called gender identity which very very few people believe in so we are asking to be we are being made to ask to, to make a religious proclamation against our wishes just to avoid the wrath of of those who perpetuate it um so like i say stand up to it got to i was afraid you were you were being too positive when you started talking there and i'm, I'm happy it got a bit darker towards the end <laughs> well you know but you have to retain the optimism as well and you have to retain faith in humanity don't you and like the most people aren't completely lost in this you know i think most people can can see sense if you if they allow themselves to do so um the trouble is so so many of these these activists they only read the books that already confirm their worldview you know they're not going to read my book but they should and it would be great if they did i read their books all the time so it would be good if they read mine and we could sit down and discuss it when's it out again september the 8th i hope everyone gets it i've already started messaging friends of mine in academia and stuff who are you know please do read this book and, and as you say some of them are more open-minded than you think once you start speaking you know they are more sort of nuanced than than twitter might suggest so um hopefully hopefully some of them will read it we shall see you know i mean my my assumption is that they're just going to get angry about it and tear it apart i've already had numerous messages saying that they're going to burn the book and uh you know that this is an evil an evil book that should never be written i mean honestly but you know that's twitter so i'm not going to take that seriously it's you know you'll, you'll get a couple of hit pieces in things like the guardian i've no doubt but you know ultimately i think it's i think it's important to open this discussion up it's it's been too closed for too long uh and it's um it it, it matters because we have two futures ahead of us and we either have the future where the liberal system wins out or the authoritarian system wins out and i don't want to be on the authoritarian side of this
Thank you, Andrew, for coming on the show. If you agree with him or want to be tested by his ideas, get hold of The New Puritans, How the Religion of Social Justice Captured the Western World, and follow Andrew Doyle on Twitter. When I make episodes about woke culture, I do generally lose a couple of patrons, so please make sure to support the podcast if you want it to keep going on patreon.com slash andrewgold. I haven't done many bonus episodes lately, but we'll get back to that ASAP, uh, and you'll get you know all the episodes ad-free as well. I also get bad reviews right after doing these woke-centered episodes, so please do try to redress the balance, as they would say, uh, remove any inequalities or whatever, uh, by leaving some good reviews to even it out on Apple Podcasts or CastBox as well. You can leave a review there and tell friends to listen uh, as well and to review, please. Uh, I had a lovely few reviews this week. Um, in fact, I had quite a few in the last couple of weeks and I've been away, so I haven't been able to update and put them in the put them in this outro. Uh, so I'm trying to catch up now. Um, so I haven't included all of them. If you've, if you've recently written in or something, I will read out your review in the next few weeks. Uh, but I got a lovely one from MumCLRH20. I don't know what those letters and numbers stand for, but this person is in the US and put five stars. My new favorite podcast, excellent interviews with fascinating people. The show gives me the chance to take a good look at topics I may not have learned about elsewhere. That is lovely. Uh, there is one by ZXXCB, also in the US, five stars, and wrote about the episode 154, Gift of Violence, and said, uh, Andrew, your guest, Matt, kept emphasizing problems due to no father figures as role models. It's difficult when they're in prison. Well, that's a very good point. My biggest question is, why didn't you ask Matt about all these white males, 17 to 25, doing mass shootings? I'm disappointed with your lack of alternative questions, Andrew. I thoroughly enjoy your alt podcast and variety of guests fan albuquerque the thing is i do so many of these now it's three episodes a week that i don't really remember and i i I would have thought i would ask him about mass shootings but maybe i didn't uh i don't know but that's a question for matt anyway uh next up it is vicky from philly and also it's all the us at the moment i think the podcast is growing a lot over there and vicky wrote best podcast five stars this has become my favorite podcast so many interesting subjects and guests andrew's the perfect host oh come on he allows his guests to tell their story without interruption and then he dives in with intelligent questions that make the guests more interesting thank you andrew for making my commute to work much easier again i've said this before and just firstly it is a bit awkward reading out nice things said about me but i do read out the horrible things as well so hopefully that evens it out but it's such a nice thought that there's someone in Philly, which I'm imagining is Philadelphia, which is uh, where the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was. West Philadelphia, born and raised, all that stuff. Um, I think that's East Coast as well, isn't it? It's like near New York. I don't know. So, but to think of just somebody, you know, going to work and listening to this podcast, it's it's phenomenal for something that started as just, you know, me sitting in a little room I guess it's still that, actually. I'm still sitting in a little room just saying stuff into a microphone. Thank you, Vicky. I also get loads of truckers in America who get in touch. I love that as well, just the thought that, you know, my podcast is ringing out in their in their van or their lorry or whatever it is. Truck, I suppose. Truckers drive trucks, don't they? Um, so thank you very much to Vicky. Uh, Vero A. Biff, um, or Vero and Biff, I guess that A is and because they're from Canada so there might be some French there I don't know uh five stars they've written as well thank you Andrew came across this podcast after listening to Andrew on the Amanda Knox and Christopher Robbins podcasts labyrinths uh absolutely hooked on Andrew's content and his approach to discussing taboo topics oh thank you Vero a beef 
Uh, that's very, very nice of you to say, and I hope you continue to enjoy this. Uh, j'espère que ça vous plaît. Ça fait beaucoup de temps que je parle pas un mot de français, mais j'espère que ça marche. Um, and Jeanette D, this is the last one I'm going to read out today. But there's quite a few more that I need to read out in the next few ones. In the UK, finally, someone, a representation in the UK, wrote informative and insightful five stars. Once again, I've discovered a fantastic podcast. Thanks to Amanda Knox and Christopher Robinson. They happen to be my favorite humans in this space because of their open and insightful discussions. And Andrew is no different, cut from the same cloth. I always want to challenge my bias. Thank you for bringing light to dark corners. Thank you, Jeanette D. I really, really appreciate that. And I'm a big fan of Amanda Knox's. I know everyone says she did it. She did it. And, you know, I don't think she did. Um, there are a few more reviews I'll read out next time. But thank you so much to everyone who has reviewed. It makes my day uh, to wake up and read them. It notifies me a few days after you leave the review. And I wake up to them every time because it comes in the middle of the night. And it just gives me a spring in my step. It's always a nervous moment, actually, before I open the email. It just tells me you've got a new review. And will it be an angry one star review or a delightful five star one? You have the power to change my day. Tune in next time to find out about a psychic mafia who colluded on information about clients. And thank you for joining me on The Edge.